0: leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I am speaking with Terry Short. She is a human potential developer who has more than 30 years of leadership experience. She has a master's in business administration and her professional coach certification. She is the founder and CEO of the Short Group LLC, the umbrella company for Thriving Leader Collaborative. She is the author of The Words We Choose, Your Guide to How and Why Words Matter. In her book, she talks about helping others become their best selves. She has been interviewed for various mediums, including Fast Company and NPR. Her book was also a 2020 American Book Fest finalist and won the Bugby Falk Book Award. I will have all the links to her her websites, her LinkedIn profile, her Instagram. Uh, I'll have all of that in the show notes. So those of you listening, uh, I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So to get more information, get her book, check out what she's all about, maybe even employ her services, check out her website in the show notes. So thank you very much, Terry. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and having this conversation with me. Um, welcome.
1: Yeah, I'm um pleased to be a part of it and I I look at your book behind you and I think I get to be a part of fuel for the future that's good that feels good I'm in I'm all in <laughs>
0: um well let's uh let's start off where it all began for you uh where were you born and raised what what were your parents like do you have any siblings Let, let's just dive right in
1: absolutely so I was actually born in Baltimore and I was uh, raised outside of Baltimore in uh the hot valley area. My parents still live there actually. And, um, I have three siblings. I like to say I'm the middle child, even though there's four of us. So people are like, wait, how does that work? <laughs> so older sister and a younger sister, they're 10 years apart. And then my brother and I are in the middle and we're only 18 months apart, but when there's an only boy, he has his own category. <laughs> so I'm the middle child. <laughs> That's how I see it. So yeah. So my parents still live there and the rest of us are all split up and, uh, uh, three out of four of us live in California, so yeah, I live in California part of the year, and my husband manages a, a pretty famous fly fishing lodge in Idaho the other part of the year. So it's sort of spring, summer, and fall. That's where we are.
0: And what did your parents do when you were growing up?
1: So my my mom stayed at home and cared for us, and my father had his own business at a really young age. As a matter of fact, I just finished um, doing a book about his life, or at least his early life. It was fascinating to me, the challenges he took when he had really little kids. I mean, when I think about it now, I'm like, wait, what 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 do you mean you had a thousand dollars to your name? (laughs) And when I hear some of the reality of the leaps, the leaps of faith that he took. And so you know, his, his story is he's like sweeping the floor at the shop that he really wants to work at and a mechanical and um, electrical engineering. And and then he's, next thing you know, he's gone to university to study that and he's making his own way. And the, the f- shop floor that he sweeps, he eventually becomes a, a leader and a contributor there. And then the owner of that company eventually ends up working for him when he creates his own company. Yeah. So super cool. So he's a very self-made. And um, as a matter of fact, Dave, that was one of my first um, kind of professional jobs. I had waited tables and run the snack bar and done all those kind of things. But when I was, uh, I want to say 18 years old, I worked for him and that was my first step into a male dominated world from a, from a work perspective. So I was able to do that because he was also someone from as little as I can remember remembering things, he taught me I could do anything. And I believed him, <laughs> so I still believe him. So it very much influenced how I approached everything in the world.
0: And I, I take it that he was really the major influence on your trajectory where, you, you know, what you studied in school and that sort of thing. Is that accurate?
1: Well, yeah, that's actually a tricky part of the story here. I was, um, I'm going to go with expected to take over the business, which required engineering. And so I applied to schools of engineering. He went with me. Again, I had three other siblings, but he went with me to look at the universities and such, applying to all the colleges of engineering. And that's why I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's my single focus, which, oh, by the way, um, in junior high, I wanted to be one of the first women at the Naval Academy. But ends up by the time I was um, maybe a freshman in high school, that happened. So I was like, oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, somebody's already doing that. So I went off that track. And so anyway, so I'm going to study engineering. And that summer when we went and saw the universities and then I applied, as the um, results were coming in and I did get into some of the schools that I wanted to, I had to make that decision. Is that really what I wanted to do? Or was I doing it because of him and because of the expectation of taking over the business? And, you know, I found myself, I was doing purchasing for him by then. And, you know, I'm purchasing steel and um, wiring and wing nuts and I'm trying so hard not to be a wing nut. (laughs) (laughs) I like, you know, I live in that world. And then I I just sort of before I went off to college and decided I took note and paid a lot of attention to what I was feeling about it and decided it wasn't for me. So much to his chagrin. So he had a partner and the partner's son, who I was very close to, and he went on to take over the business. And so one might say I let my father down, um, but he never showed that. He still was OK, whatever it is that you want to do, go forth. I believe in you. You've got this.
0: So where did where did you go to school and, and how did that lead you to earning your master's in, in business administration?
1: Yeah, I took the really long route <laughs> for school. So I went to the University of um, or to Loyola University in Baltimore right? I guess it's in Baltimore um, for a couple of years, and then I did what we now call a gap year. You know, back in the day we didn't talk about gap years, but anyway, now we call it a gap year. I was away, I was ahead of myself, <laughs> so into my gap year I went, and I um, I lived in Martha's Vineyard. I then went to ski in Tahoe and um, play for that that uh, winter, and then I moved to San Francisco. So I get to San Francisco. I'm waiting tables. I go back to school, University of um, USF, University of San Francisco. And then next thing you know, I'm becoming a manager at this very kind of popular restaurant in the uh, Um, on Pier 39. And that starts to change everything. So I I kept going back to school, putting it on hold, doing the career, going back to school, putting it on hold. And so it takes another decade for me to finish school. (laughs) And then right after I do, that's when it occurs to me that because of the job that I was in, an advanced degree was required in healthcare. And so that's when I decided to do that. But really, the answer is, while um, what was more influ- influential was the, um, the work that I was doing. So as I kept being promoted in hospitality, I was totally drawn to that. I was drawn to um, being of service to others, and I found that I was good at it. That's way different than an engineering career, <laughs> like <laughs> crazy different, right? And so I managed restaurants, um, had another... sort of epiphany um, in my 20s, I woke up and um, realized that what I was doing, I could do in my 30s. That's how it went through my head. And I almost bought a washer and a dryer, which felt like, like, (laughs) it felt like, I don't know, like an anchor or something. It was going to hold me down. So I took another gap year. And I went off to New Zealand and Australia and hitchhiked around or what have you, because I had that confidence that I could come back and slip right into what I was doing and I did. So that's what that early uh, hospitality career really added to the confidence that I had that um, I would be successful. And so I was in leadership like straight away. And so when I came back from New Zealand, I ended up with Four Seasons Hotels. And that was a pivotal point with my, hospitality trajectory yeah
0: you mentioned healthcare. care what <laughs> yeah. where's that transition come in
1: yeah that's, that's a crazy thing <laughs> so ends up I'm doing um hospitality I'm loving it I go from four several years in four seasons San Francisco and D.C. and then I end up in um the, on the Monterey Peninsula where there wasn't a four seasons I choose to leave And I end up at Pebble Beach Company where I meet my husband and I, as he would tell this story, no sooner do I meet him than I say, I'm quitting my job. (laughs) Well, first what happens is he has to quit his because I was about to be his boss. So he goes somewhere else. I stick it out for a little bit. And then... uh, I, because we're now going to start a family, I decide I want to have my own business and I want to train middle management, like leaders. Those are the leaders that like never get any training, and I, I just felt so passionate about that. So I thought, well, I'm going to quit my job, get this business started, and have that underway. But as I have children, and then um, be, I'll be able to work for my own, work on my own from home. <clears throat> Again, ahead of my time, work from home. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got this. So I do that and I do that for 15 years, 95 to 2010. While I'm doing that in the middle of doing that as a consultant, I open and operate the largest guest hospitality. It's the largest guest ranch in the state of Montana. So now we live in Montana and life is good. We're like enjoying all that there is to do in Montana. And by way of um, sitting on a board with another board member who is the chief medical officer of the small hospital, one of the small hospitals in Missoula, Montana, he kept bugging me. You gotta come work for the hospital. You gotta come work for the hospital. And I'm like, wait, I, like, I, I don't have any experience in that at all. But what he wanted was my leadership experience. He wanted my expertise in serving others and improving engagement. So I come on as a senior leader to improve the physician, employee, and patient experience and how to pull all three of those things together so that the hospital is delivering better care, basically. So that's how I get into healthcare. Caveat would be, I probably took the largest pay cut in the history of pay cuts, (laughs) but it was worth it. And why it was worth it is I had been spending all of of my expertise, my skill to to serve others but that was really sort of the rich and famous and I operated in that space in hospitality that was like the highest echelon you know and now I could use those skills to serve the most vulnerable so I was all in and that's how I transitioned to healthcare
0: and then that's when you decided to get your MBA
1: Yeah before that like as sort of during that thought process of doing the um, transition so yeah, so I so I, I'm at the hospital, and I'm not I was confident that I could fix what um, they wanted me to fix and be a part of the team. Um, that it wouldn't take too long. And so I knew that like eighteen months in, I would want to be transitioning to something else. and that's when I start like understanding what would be required. And I end up with a company that really wrote the book on the patient experience called Studer Group, and I end up working for them and traveling. I traveled, and I now I'm coaching hospital leaders nationwide. and i'm I mean, I was more West Coastish um, by choice, or let's say west of Denver. Um, but yeah, so I got super passionate about that. Here I am in my sweet spot, coaching people, and I'm coaching them to be better leaders to improve the physician. Um, employee and patient experience, which it was a really really cool job, and from there I end up in the, with HCA and at a corporate position, same responsibility but now much bigger, um, much bigger impact. Right, HCA is the largest healthcare provider in the United States. So,
0: one of the things that really stands out to me is your your sense of confidence, your ability to transition fairly seamlessly. And I I feel like that's a level of confidence that was really developed in you early on. And a a lot of the leaders that I've interviewed, you'll have these stories of, you know, making big mistakes, crashing and burning, losing businesses, you know, losing their jobs, losing their careers, and and having to really pick themselves up dust themselves off and that's when they have that realization like I'm tougher than I thought I was whereas you know you're one of a few that I've interviewed that seem to have already had that knowledge like I'm pretty dang tough I you know bring it on and would you say that that really comes from you know your early life or did that really grow in you as you worked your way through your professional career?
1: One question, and it's one that I, you know, people kind of dance around what you just said nicely about, you know, that what people ask me like straight up, what was your biggest challenge, how did you overcome it? So, a couple of things. Yes, my parents might say I came like out of the womb with this the confidence of 10 people or something crazy like that. Maybe, and like, but I don't believe that. I believe that it's it's all um, developed. Like everybody's sense of confidence is developed over time, either from something traumatic or something big that happens, or a series of smaller things. Now, there were things in my life that another person might go, well, that's a huge challenge. And I just didn't see it that way. So that's part of it. So I've got the father telling me you can do anything, you know, building my confidence up from ground one. Right. And then what I did, what I still do differently than a lot of people is the, from a minor thing to a major thing, a life challenge, a business challenge, anything I've somehow built the ability to I say practice the pause to pause and to reframe the situation. I could be, I could have a title like the grand reframer, (laughs) like I'm the grand reframer of situations. So, you know, so something happens and I say to myself, there are three things that I say to myself when something happens, hopefully your listeners will find this as a key takeaway. first thing I say is, huh, What's a positive about this? So I am the eternal optimist. So it's typically easy for me, even when like things are burning down. I'm like, oh, well, at least it's starting to rain. (laughs) Like whatever. Like I'm gonna find that one positive thing. So I challenge myself to say, what's a positive or maybe three positives that will be born out of this? Or this horrible thing just happened at work, or we're laying off a hundred people. What's a positive? And I I always force myself to say, to what are one or two or three positives? The next thing I ask myself is, what can I learn from this? Even this most horrible thing that's happening at the company or in my life, what can I, what do I stand to learn from this? Even if I don't see it right now, what's the potential for learning in the future? And then the third thing I say to myself is based on that, based on the positives and the learning, be it right now learning or potential learning, how do those two things inform the third thing, which is how I respond. How will I now use that information to reframe and say, here's how I'm gonna show up. Here's how I'm gonna respond. So that, so each time you do that, you build confidence. I guarantee it. Like each time you walk through those steps, you build confidence.
0: Now, I I feel like we're at a point where can really talk about the the path that you took or whatever inspired you whatever influenced you to write your book because it seems like you wrote your book based on things that you already knew and had been teaching others already that that's the impression that i got is that accurate
1: It it is and my book is completely it's 201 pages of common sense that's how I see it. Right. So it's a lot of common sense. And as I go, whether it was in hospitality or healthcare, I became more and more sensitive to the words people chose, the things people would say. So particularly or at first in hospitality, think simple things like people would say, I'd, li- I'd like um, I'd like some ice brought to my room and the person answering the phone would say no problem. And I think to myself, well, why did you say that? Like, they didn't think it was going to be a problem. <laughs> like, why did you offer that? It, well, you offered two negatives, the word no and problem. And, you know, you might've just said, be my pleasure or I'd be happy to. That's a much more positive, assertive, affirmative thing to say. So I started being very um, in tuned to the words people were choosing. Interaction, Interacting with guests and then leaders as well. So I'd hear lead- leaders say things to their team something like, um, well, we'll probably make our numbers this coming quarter. And I think to myself, well, well which is it? Will you or won't you? <laughs> like, why, why probably, right? So I got more and more obsessed about word choices. Then I enter healthcare, oh my goodness. And the things I heard people say to patients and I would think, okay, you just scared the heck out of them. <laughs> like, that's nutty. Like, that, that's not what they needed to hear. And there's a different way or a better way to express what you care for them to know, right? And it's actually been proven that um, the degree to which patients are put at ease by way of what we say to them in, is actually directly correlated to their ability to heal. So their ability to hear instructions and then go home and progress and this and that is related to how well they were communicated with. So now I'm in healthcare and it's building. And I'm like, okay, it seems very um, like second nature to me, or it seemed very um, like common sense. And then I became uh, clear that it's not. That's why I wrote the book. That like let's tease this out. And you know, even things such as microaggressions and people things that people say. There's a section in the book that. Deals with ageism and sexism and racism and just words that we choose that we're preconditioned to choose and we're not super clear about the cause and effect of those words. So that's what kind of leads me to it. The book starts, Dave, with a look at that internal narrative and that now I call that your personal podcast because I'm always doing these podcasts and like um, and talking think talking about those word choices, how important it is. So you said, I have a lot of confidence. Um, how I maintain that is when I start to say, well, um, I haven't really ever done that before. I, I might not be able to do that. As soon as like that kind of narrative plays, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. where did that doubt come from? And then I reframe it so that I'm using words that, you know, I have not done that before and I'm capable of learning how to do that. So I change that narrative so that the book starts with that because you've gotta get that personal podcast internal narrative straight before you're um, helping others and like put your oxygen mask on, (laughs) right? Before you help someone else. And so you wanna get that straight before then you're paying attention to the words you're choosing and the effect they have on others.
0: I want to dig deeper into this because in in my book, I I talk about emotional intelligence. I I talk about really it's I believe it's just one chapter where I talk about the culture of the fire service and how it is one of the uh, most exclusive male dominated Uh, occupations in North America, where when you look at occupations that are similar in education requirements, physical requirements, uh, the the requirement to put yourself in danger, you know, there's all these different aspects of being a firefighter. And a, a lot of what people have said and written why there aren't more women in the fire service is because, Oh, well, you know, they don't want to do it or, you know, they're, they lack the upper body strength uh, just, you know, physiologically, they're just not, you know, the same as men. And, and all of the research that I've done points to all of that being a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And, and what I, have also found traveling around the country, going to conferences directly related to the fire service. I've met a lot of fire service professionals. And when you talk about leadership and leadership development in these different departments across the country, large and small, when you ask like mid-level leaders, you know, like company officers where they're in charge of a fire station, if you ask about, you know, do they feel like their department helps them develop as a leader 9 times out of 10 they say no and then you ask them well you know how do you feel about the leadership above you do you feel like they're effective do you think that they have your best interests you know do they, do you feel like they care about you and it's 9 times out of 10 no the leadership sucks well it is also when you look at all of these male-dominated occupations with similar requirements, the fire service in 2010, this is based on 2010 census numbers, the uh, percentage of women in the fire service was like 3.7%. The 2020 census showed 4.7%. 1% in 10 years. Now, all the other occupations in 2010, like law enforcement, military, truck drivers, iron workers, welders, all that kind of stuff, it, it was right around 17 to 19%. That's a huge disparity. And it's really not the gender that's the defining factor, it's the culture. And what I propose is that it is this self-perpetuating uh, poor leadership model where these leaders are very resistant to change. They feel like they got to where they are because they did it this way and you know that's the right way. And bringing women in is going to you know disrupt the apple Card. it's going to water down the requirements and now we're going to have a bunch of you know i don't know weaklings trying to save people and and that's just nonsense when you when you put men and women side by side and have these job requirements physical requirements Everybody's required to meet those requirements. You'll see that some will be at the top and some will be at the bottom, but they meet those requirements. And it's not the gender that is the determining factor. You go to this other aspect of leadership where all of the major research about you know, talking about what effective leadership looks like, and individuals that score the highest in, you know, like 360 degree evaluations on how they're viewed as a leader, how effective they are as a leader, you know, they have a very high emotional intelligence quotient. And then you look at the key factors of what you teach in leadership as being really important factors, commute communication skills, having empathy, being able to re- relate to the people that you're leading, caring about them, being able to build uh, these relationships and, and maintain them all of these areas of emotional intelligence are all the areas that women score higher than men in. And when you look at male dominated organizations that lack, you know, any real uh, representation from women in these leadership positions, you'll find that they have these toxic leadership environments. It, seems like there's a huge correlation there. So if the culture in the fire service was one in which they would embrace more women, effectively mentor them, really create an environment where they can experience success to the same degree as the men, you would have more women attracted to that occupation you would see leadership development improve across the board, not just the women, but the men. And I I just think it would just be such a better work environment for everyone. You see performance, all that. And so what got me on this was what you were talking about is how words matter. And Really, having that sense of, you know how am I being received, having that awareness to adjust the language that you use so that it's more uh, of, well, it's a better experience for everybody all around. And then that that negative self-talk that instead of having that negative self-talk, being able to reframe things like you're talking i just feel like your book is what every leader should be reading
1: (laughs) a funny story for you dave actually as you started saying this about the fire departments i I don't even know why i didn't think about this on the pre-call to talk to you about this so i've uh, done coaching for exactly one fire department huge let's just say they're in a very large state in the South (laughs) and it's a huge area. And I'm invited in to coach. It was a series of webinars that I did to coach on communication specifically, but here's the punchline. The chief was a woman. The chief was a woman who had the self-awareness and the desire to break down those barriers and to level set communication and knew that from a leadership development standpoint, there, there were some meetings that were, um, you know, so, it's, so we started with the senior leaders and there was, there were meetings that I held with them and then the next level and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, to have the proper cascade. But when you started talking, I was kind of laughing at myself. I thought, huh, and the only fire department organization, it wasn't just a department, it was like a whole area, was like big huge. I think they had 900 people all together,
0: anyway. That's like a, a metro-sized fire department yeah. where, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, not that many leaders, but total 900 people. But anyway, so the irony, what made me laugh about it all is that it was a woman at the helm that said, in order to for everybody to operate at a higher level, we we should have some communication, specifically communication education. And that's what I was hired to do.
0: Well, can you talk a little more about your book? Some, some more nuggets that are in there?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love to. So I want to talk a little bit about the words. So I'm not going to go into like the gender specific words so much. And, you know, some of the things that would be, I'm guessing in the, um, in fire departments that there are, um, microaggressions where people are saying things. This is the reality is that the men are saying things that they do not even realize would be offensive to the women. So it's kind of a re-education. I mean, to be fair, that's things are said that have sort of always been said. And without having the women there all along, it's, um, possible that there's a lack of awareness as to what might, and I experienced that myself. I mean, when I was with Four Seasons, I was the only skirt (laughs) at the board table and things would be said and I would think to myself, do they realize how offensive that is to me? And the answer is no, they didn't, right? And so it's an education situation. What I wanna talk about though are some of these words that this works for the personal podcast as well as when you're speaking to others. Some of the words that limit and minimize as opposed to elevate or inspire, right? So I, I threw out there before that, you know, probably, or might, or try, all those words. Like that's um, that's where I quote Yoda, there is no try, do or do not, right? So, so to eliminating those words and filling them in with more assertive words. We can, we will, not might, or probably, or try, but really very assertive, can, will, and absolutely no should. So this is something that I suspect um, shows up uh, um, occasionally in your world, is when, we talk, when we're when we grounded in how things have always been, then we start to talk about should, we should do this. And whenever one says, particularly when a leader says we should do X, what goes through my mind is, okay, well, why is that? And if you're choosing to use should, then you must not own the outcome because you're choosing a word that indicates somebody else or something else (laughs) has driven you to do that. Like you're doing it on behalf of someone else or something else, right? I should do this because so-and-so said so or the boss said so or what have you. That's very disempowering, right? That's not helpful. It's not helpful to have that position. It also kind of creates a we-they culture or us-them. And so eliminating should and filling it out in with what you really do own. You know, we will do this and here's why, you know, by all means, provide the why. Um, And not backing away from what you perceive should be done. And if you can't, this is key. If you feel that you can't and you're saying should because you don't really, you don't own it, you don't believe in it or what have you, then go believe in it. Then go figure out why this decision was made or this is the way that it's it's going down, right? Go, go, go inquire until, to the point that you can own it, right? So let's see what else, but, oh my gosh, so this is one actually that I think women are more um, uh, sensitive to, let's say, than men. When somebody's talking, like, let's say you were telling me a story, and you're talking along, and I, first of all, if I insert but after whatever you're saying, that's almost an interruption, right? Because you're saying your thing. And then I go, but, and then I want to say my thing. And so I've severed, I think about it like scissors. I've severed what you just were talking about. And I've gone off into what what was important to me. I can do that all on my own too. I can say, um, I'd like to share an update on the project that we've been working on, but we're going to definitely have to add more people to this. So now I've said, this thing's kind of important, but now I've cut it and said, this other thing's even more important, whereas I could extend it and I could say, I want to share an update on the project we've been working on, and that'll lead to a conversation about additional resources. Now I've I've been more assertive. I've extended it. I've been I've added more of a um, collaborative approach. And even if you were talking and I had something to add. I would listen and I might say, I might paraphrase part of what you said and then say, and that would open up an opportunity for us to also do such and such. There's no need for me to say, but there's no need for me to cut it off, right? So those are some of my key ones. I have more. Shall I keep going?
0: Yes, please.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, if, so in the last two years, we've spent a lot of time, like once COVID hit, this got worse. And it's probably always been bad, but I got more sensitive to it. People started talking about if, if I ever see my family again, if we ever travel, if we return to the office, I mean, you name it, we got like if, 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 because there was a lot of uncertainty. Again, when I heard leaders leading with if, I would think to myself, huh, so how um, elevating or inspiring is that for you to, to choose if, and what's lost or what's what the harm would come in choosing when? When we return to the office, when we travel again. It's more hopeful. It's more hopeful, it's more positive, it's more assertive, right? So those are sort of switch up words. Um, talk to you about should. Pretty, this is kind of a, um, goes along the, the uncertainty thing. Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that this will happen or I'm pretty c- certain. Well, just be certain and if you can't if it's if you're hedging because you're not certain then use a percentage I'm 75 percent sure doesn't that feel better if I said that they then I'm pretty sure <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah it just it does it doesn't serve this is what the filter that goes through my mind. When I'm choosing my words, is what purpose does it serve, and is it aligned with what my intention is? So that's what I'm thinking. And the whole premise of my book is, you know, we have what's in our heart. Oftentimes at work, that doesn't show up. We don't let that out. We have what's in our heart. We have what's in our mind. So, like intellectually, I've got like this information going on that I want to share. When I when I marry the two, when I pause long enough to consider what's in my heart. My intention and what's in my head and I I marry the two then I allow what comes out of my mouth to be on point much more on point.
0: How did you compile all of this? I mean it it had to have been uh, like years and years of saying oh there's another word that needs to be fixed right
1: so I did it, it took a year. It took one year. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Um, it took a year because of my process. Like I'm, I'm very um, driven, very goal oriented. And once I decided I needed to write a book about this, like once and for all, um, I, then I did all this research. And that this will help your listeners too. I believe anybody can write a book. So you've written a book. And I don't know what your process is was, but my process was I did all this research. I spent like a month researching. I'm like, oh a nonfiction book is about 200 to 220 pages long. And how many words is that? 55,000 words. And how many words can I write in an hour? <laughs> like, did a little bit. And then I made myself a schedule. And I, I mean, I literally would say to my husband, I you know, I can't, um, I can't go to dinner tonight. I still have 1100 words to write <laughs> because I was so determined to stay on schedule and, you know, knock out the words that, um, and that related to, to your point, I separated it out into the different topics. And then this is the advantage I had. So I'm a coach. And so I coach three days a week. This is kind of to your point as I'm coaching. So I'm like this want a call with somebody. And then now I'm going to give this away to all my, uh, all my clients <laughs> as I'm coaching, they're saying things and I'm taking, I, I mean, I take notes about the conversation, but on the side, I have a running list of like things people say that I add to my list that I've had for decades, right? So, so my leg up is that I simply have to pay attention to what the people are saying, right? And then I, I can put it all together. But I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't offer um, a review. One more, this is kind of the favorite. This is like the favorite word change that everybody, um, that everybody seems to like they get their arms around or whatever so it's the difference between have to and get to and so so often every day we say we have to do things we have to pick the kids up after school we have to do the laundry this weekend um, and then you go into the corporate world and you say we have to implement this new rule by way of the guidance from the county or what have you um, and so we we talk in these terms about what we have to do Super not helpful and also not exactly aligned with our intention. Like, I'm not, I don't intend for the kid that's overhearing me say we have to pick their brother up from soccer, I don't intend for them to think it's a burden, but it sounds that way. I have to go do this thing, right? I have to pick the kids up, I have to do the laundry. So, we think that's a burden, I have to do the laundry. Well, in the end, when I say I get to do the laundry this weekend, and the reason I get to do it is because, oh, by the way, I actually have clothes that need laundering and I have a wash machine and running water and detergent and I get to come Sunday, have fresh clothes because the alternative exists, right? So it does. And now it makes me more grateful. And so when I turn things from that's a simple one to, what we get to do in the workplace in order to serve others, in order to create a product, in order to serve clients, what have you, it changes everything. It changes the culture. It changes how we feel about what we're what we're contributing, what we're showing up and contributing. And I had in the book, I talk about a CEO of a hospital system in Colorado that I coached for several years. And that was how single-handedly, Dave, that's how he turned his uh, the morale of his organization around. He didn't tell people, you should start saying get to instead of have to. He didn't say that at all. He took my coaching and he did that. He started speaking. We get to keep our patients safe by implementing this new um, uh, requirement from the government, right? From the the governing body. And so he, he started doing it and people, it just sort of happened organically and they paid attention. And then his leaders started speaking in terms of what they get to do and how they get to serve those who are on their team. And it, it changed everything. So that's like one huge example. I've seen many, many examples along the way. So that's a reframing. That's exactly what that is. It's the reframing in how we think about that, which we do on a daily basis. You mentioned
0: that you you have children, correct? Mm -hmm. How many children do you have? Two. Two? And this is going to lead into my question. How old are they?
1: 25 and 24. So I have a son that's 25 and a daughter that's 24.
0: Along the way, you taught them a lot of different lessons. What do you believe was the most important lesson that you taught each of them? Were they different lessons or were they the same and of equal importance in your mind? And I, and I think it's great that it was a, a male and a female because a lot of times it we view them differently and, and how we approach teaching them about life. So. I'm I, super
1: glad you asked me that. Okay. <laughs> I'm passionate about this. So I read a book early on called Reviving Ophelia. I actually talk about that. I re- referenced that book in my book. It's specifically for uh, parents and teachers and caregivers of young girls. And it's about word choices and how those word choices er- affect their self-esteem and therefore affect them as they grow. There are similar boy-related books that none is good that I found. And so anyway... So I took that all to heart. And so here I have these toddlers. We lived in I- middle of nowhere, Idaho at the time. My husband was doing the fly fishing watch then too. And t- they spent a lot of time in the minivan. <laughs> so you're driving down the road. This is what I learned from the book. Driving down the road and I'd see a big backhoe or some big caterpillar truck in a field or you know on the side. Initially, I'd want to say, hey guys, look at that guy in the backhoe. And then I would think to myself, why did I assume it was a guy? So I started changing that. And I'd say, hey, look at that person or look at that gal. or And they go, mom, that's not a gal. And I'd say, well, it could be, right? You know, And we'd have that kind of conversation. So it started very young in not, um, I very intentionally chose words that did not pigeonhole them into, these are the boy things and these are the girl things. I did raise very much a tomboy daughter. I was very much a tomboy, so that's what I knew, <laughs> like, right? So So that part didn't come to difficult for me because I didn't see that or feel that differentiation myself, which is also born out of my brother being 18 months older than me. So we were like this, right? So I didn't feel the difference, like whatever he could do, I could do. Like, obviously, <laughs> that's how I, that was the world that I lived in. So did my daughter. Anyway, to your point, I, I, my husband and I very intentionally are doing this. So now he's working this half year fishing lodge, the other half the year i I'm doing my business. And so one of us is always with them. And then we homeschool them through the sixth grade. And so we had a lot of one-on-one time with them to um, impart this. And then once we moved to Missoula, Montana, and he stops the fly fishing lodge, he's the stay-at-home dad. So on top of all that, we're modeling that there is no, anybody can do any of these things, right? just not. We never, we, we have not modeled for them a clear differentiation between male and female and such. And so that's been our biggest influence on them and who they are. And so I like to think that our son is very, he communicates very well. I mean, sometimes he says things to me or talks about conversations with his girlfriend. I'm like, seriously, <laughs> like it's beyond my expectations um, because he goes to a deeper level than even my husband and I would have when we were his age. So part of that I think is this new generation is much more in tuned to how they feel and to um, expressing themselves. And then a second piece of it, I, I think we would take a little credit for how we, um, how we raised them or how we imparted that.
0: I, I have a 15 year old daughter and I, I always try and get little bits of advice Uh, you know, I, I feel like I do a pretty good job. I feel like I'm a pretty good dad, uh, but I always try and get better.
1: Well, I just bent over and picked up my book because I'm going to, I'm going to give you some get better. All right. (laughs) So I talk in the book about, um, framing our questions. So I know we're, um, I'll get to wrapping it here. Um, framing our questions so that we get a better response. So we don't get a yes, no answer. And we don't get fine. Fine. Like you have a 15 year old, you're getting a lot of fine. (laughs) There's a lot of fine going on now. So so reframing and asking your questions, starting with what, how, or tell me. That requires a response. So you can't say what something, something, or how did something happen? And the person says, fine, right? It's, they're typically going to be Obligated to say something more so here's I'm reading right out of the book right page 45 so it's framing questions like this what was the best part of your school of the of school today and why what happened today at school that made you laugh what was the worst thing that happened what was the funniest thing that happened what would you change about today um tell me what you did today that made somebody else happy Tell me the most interesting thing that you learned today so all of those questions like probe they're more powerful and they probe deeper and they require kind of a, a more informed response so since you brought up 15 year old daughter i thought i'm gonna whip out the book <laughs> like, because hopefully that was helpful
0: yes absolutely uh you gave me a lot more que- so this is what i typically do when i when i talk to her after school is i say oh well you know how was your day And it's typically, uh, it was good, or it it was fine, or whatever. And I go, well, tell me about the the best part of your day. What was the best part of your day? And then she's got to thank, and she'll tell me. And I do ask her, and this was actually a, a much bigger conversation that I had with her, maybe a year ago. And it's a, it's an ongoing conversation, as to, how we add value to those around us and how that adds value to us. So when we approach each day with that in mind, that at some point I am going to make somebody smile, I'm going to help them in some way, I'm going to add value to somebody, even if it's just to improve their mood. Right, I
1: love
0: it. And so that is uh, really, I would say maybe once a week, I ask her, how, you know, how did you affect somebody else's day to day? And she's phenomenal. Like she, she really is. And I know that I'm biased, but she is an incredible, incredible young woman. And I'm just extremely proud of her. So
1: well, I'm guessing that you're modeling that she's capable and competent and you're you're pushing that confidence that I told you my father pushed, right? I want to double back to two things you did there or that you're doing that are fantastic. One is the tell me. So to say t- what, how, or tell me. And then, then they say something to say, tell me more. And even as leaders, as parents or as leaders, tell me more. And so don't don't even paraphrase or do anything until you say, "Tell me more," and you get some more goodness out of them, right? So whatever it is, pause, tell me more. And it's that's how you're you further the conversation. Gosh, Dave, The second thing is if all leaders, all leaders could be as um, mindful as you are at asking those probing questions, it would be about 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 the value in particular we'd be in a better place. So in other words, what value did you bring today? When I was a consultant, and I, I, mean, I still do this, or if I'm on the big stage or something, I'll I'll do this after this call. You do something and you stop and then you say, what value did I bring? What value did I provide in doing X? And so that's what you're getting her to contemplate. So think about it, if all leaders did that, they went into a meeting, they came out and they said, what value did I, or even they did it in advance. What value do I intend to contribute in participating in this meeting now? Anyway, so yay. Your daughter's great because you're doing great great work with her. It's fantastic.
0: Is there anything that we didn't discuss today that that you feel we really we need to t- at least touch on? Is there something in your book that you feel is important to share or, or any little nugget of wisdom that you, that you feel we should share with the audience?
1: No, I put a quote at the beginning of the book by a gentleman named Tom Kenyon. And he says, we are, we create the world or we are creating the world by how we speak to each other. And my interpretation of that and how I say that the Terry short quote would be yours is the voice of humankind. And so when I say that, I, I feel the weight of that when I say it. And if I if I own that mine is the voice of humankind, and as Tom said, and therefore we're creating the world by how we speak to each other, that leads to choose your words wisely. <laughs> that's like, that's it. Like, uh, yeah.
0: Harry, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a great conversation, and I, it, like, led to so many other little different uh, nuggets that I, I, I just can't thank you enough for for it allowing this dialogue to happen and just being so so present in it. So I, I really appreciate it. It was really good.
1: It's been my pleasure. And you're you kind of brought out the perfect things at the perfect time. So thank you.
0: <laughs> and for all those listening out there, again, I just want to reiterate that uh, all of Terry's links will be in the show notes. Um, but First, let me just ask you to spell it out for for the listeners in case they are in their car and, you know, want somebody to jot it down for them. What what is your website? What's the best way to contact you, connect with you, get your book?
1: And spelling it out is important because my name is spelled differently. So it's Terry, T-E-R-R-E, at shortgroup.net. And uh, shortgroup.net is my one of my websites. The other one is Thriving Leader Collaborative, no S, because there is a thriving leader. So thrivingleadercollaborative.com, and that's where you learn about retreats that I do and just you know different work. So um, I'd love I'd love for people to reach out directly through my email. That'd be great.
0: And and your book, I, I would imagine, is everywhere: mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah,
1: it is you buy it on my website, but it's um a little more efficient for you to buy it for through um Amazon or your favorite, any of them, any of the indie book sites, um that'd be great. And leave me a review.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've been learning how important that is. Yeah. So so actually you read Terry's book, leave a review. And all you guys out there that have read my book and haven't left a review, please do.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, all right. Thank you so much, Terry.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollembuckleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.